Now, there is a truism there. Jesus' name is all throughout this passage. One of those English realities, but the name Yeshua was Jesus' name, which is the name we derive Joshua from. But English speakers have never gotten comfortable calling Joshua's Jesus Yeshua and Joshua's Yeshua. And so we have Joshua and Jesus. But yeah, So let's go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father God, as we come before this remarkable word this morning, please bless us with your Spirit. We need your Spirit to be able to feast upon this word, to partake in it, to learn from it, to heed, to mature, to further grow and develop through it. So please, may your Spirit abide in this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in the wilderness wanderings, there has been a repeated pattern. I think most of us have picked up on it. It's the fact that Israel has, this congregation of Israel has constantly been its own worst enemy. There's quite a lot of historical quotes that kind of go along the lines, I've seen the enemy and the enemy is me, or I've seen the enemy and the enemy is us. And thus far in the wilderness wandering, that's been a true reality of the grumbling, the constant complaining. And yet, Christianity is not some Eastern kind of religion that is just like navel-gazing that's always interested in the self. It is a religion that there is a truth, there is a good wisdom in the fact that we should always be careful to remember the fact that often our own worst enemy stares at us in the mirror in the mornings. But here is a moment in the wilderness where enemies are coming for the people of God. External enemies. Enemies that are outside the covenant community. They are actually seeing the weakness. I'm about to read a passage from Deuteronomy where Moses later references this moment and, and gives more detail on why now. Why did these descendants of Amalek strike now but they see this moment of weakness in the, the covenant community that's been dealing with starvation and grumbling and groaning. And, and they say, now is an opportune time to attack. And so right at the very beginning of this passage, we have a stark warning in the fact that we have to be careful. We always need to be careful in the fact that, yes, we can get caught up in the grumblings of just within the community, within the camp, within the covenant community. And I think the American church for decades has often been able to kind of focus on those kinds of inner church conflict. But here we are with this group of opportunists who have no fear of God in their eyes. And they are going to strike now at this congregation of the Lord in this time of weakness and they have to learn the reality that the real enemies in this moment are not within the camp. They're outside the camp, outside the congregation, and those enemies are coming for them. You can read in Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 17, the following, when Moses gives a summary of why did they attack. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint, 
and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, he did not fear God. And so this passage is very much a passage where no longer is this just an introspective wilderness wandering of looking in the mirror, but what do we do when enemies come for us outside the camp? But we also need to know who is this enemy? The Amalekites. Who are they? We learn who they are from really Genesis 36, verse 12. They are descendants from Esau, the son who gave up his blessing, the son who was not connected to the covenant, the rival to Jacob, the rival to Israel. And now the people of God are out of Egypt. They're headed towards the pathway that God has directed them on. And now is the moment where the enemy is setting to strike them. And yet just to link this enemy to Esau would sort of be empty. It wouldn't be enough. Because if we went into the earliest parts of Scripture, for instance, Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain, another brother, with no fear of God in his eyes, lash out and strike against his brother Abel in his weakness. Or even earlier than that, we can see the inspiration for such a diabolical plan is found in Genesis 3 itself. When the father of all lies, when the father of murder saw an opportunity for those created uniquely in the image of God to be cut off, to allow them to experience a spiritual death through, in large part, his cunning. Though man is personally guilty of that sin, this is a story today that we're reading in Exodus 17 that I'm trying to make clear to you. This, is just not, this isn't just a historical tale. If we were in a Jewish synagogue, this would, uh, the Jewish synagogue rabbi would basically tell you, ah, this is the first battle that ever happened for Israel, that the people of Israel ever had to fight in. But what I'm saying is it's far greater than that. And actually, the New Testament and all throughout the Bible, it, and even in the prophets, it will connect this reality. There is a greater spiritual battle that this moment in Scripture points to and that we are all engaged in and we all need to be careful in and we all need to know how to respond to when forces like this, outside forces of evil, come for us. And so let's look at how Moses leads the people under the inspiration of God. What are his first words of instruction? Moses looks at Yeshua and he says, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now that's an interesting first expression of advice itself, at least in our day and age. If all our grandparents were here, still with us in, in, in presence, since I know for some of you that's true, but if, for, for instance, my grandparents were here, or maybe your grandparents were here, th this would be understandable. You reach a critical point, you reach a critical moment where the people might be overwhelmed. Well, that's a moment where we need for us men. We need well-chosen men. But now we live in a world that finds more wrong with manhood than it does actually see any positives to the characteristic. Such ideas have even weaseled their way into many pulpits that purport to be Christian. I know of even personally several individuals who are in the U.S. military and have done everything to further advance 
And they basically been let know that they're not the right skin color or gender. That no more promotions will be coming for them. Being a man has fallen on hard times in the nation we live in. And yet when danger came upon this group of people, God inspired Moses to say, go find men. And what type of men do you think Joshua looked for in the camp? Do you think he cared about skin colors or equity or, or how much wealth or lack thereof they had in their bank accounts? No. Absolutely not. We all know the kinds of men that Joshua looked for. He would have sought men of sound and unfazed focus with well-ordered households not prone to fear, draped in wisdom, a strong heart, uncompromising. He would have looked for faithful men and men faithful not only to households, but most importantly, faithful to God. God doesn't want all the men of the camp. Think about, this is an army coming to kill them. Kill them, all of them. God doesn't ask for all of them. He asks for Joshua to pick some men. And these were men who knew that even if it cost my life, I fear not, for the Lord is with me. We know this kind of man being talked about in our own national history because in our past we honored such men. We considered their sacrifices and bravery, and they helped define words for us like valor, honor, and courage for us. Those were the kinds of men that Joshua was looking for, and those are the qualities in our present day we are quickly casting off. It's toxic masculinity. Haven't you heard? And, and let me say this because we're in political season. I would love for a day to come, but it doesn't seem like it's going to come this year, but every time there's a presidential election, I've given my children the opportunity to go with me to vote. And I say this for the people who really want to convince themselves that this candidate or that candidate wins, we're all, happy days are ahead. You know what I've had to tell my kids every time? And I don't even know if it, it's weight on them, but it weighs on me. I point out to them before I cast a vote, I'm sorry you live in a nation where the candidates I can vote for, not a single one on the ballot, the major ticket, would be somebody who could be an elder in a church. Want to know what's happened to America? Look at the men we've chosen, regardless of political party. Some pathetic, weak men. Pathetic, weak men. God doesn't want men like that. He wants men with courage, with dignity, with respect. And yet we've so twisted this idea of manhood that what Joshua is doing in this moment would be called sexist and misogynistic in our greatest centers, our most hallowed halls of learning, antiquated and patriarchal. And even most seats of power in this world today would agree, at least in the Western world. And so what I want you to appreciate all this morning, fellow saints, what the take-home point is here at the very beginning about this men is the following. As the enemy of, enemies of God continue to see weakness within the congregation of the Lord, see weakness in the people, and there is good reason for weakness to be seen in the American Christian church, there is going to be a false kind of masculinity there's going to be a false understanding of how to battle against that which comes against us. And it's going to want to speak out against men who are singularly focused. The kind of men who have boldness and bravery and deep faith and conviction and are willing to address evil and name evil and speak out against evil because the world and what it worships, the secular society, now calls that evil good. We can even see this in our 
English allies historically of Canada and England, you can get arrested in those countries now for speaking about pro-life and speaking out against abortion. You get arrested for misgendering and you can get arrested for talking about biblical sexuality and you can get arrested for all sorts of things that the worship of the world deems as sacred and sacrosanct and you must protect it. And you know what we need? We need men. Men who are willing to speak out against that reality. And this isn't just some problem in the Bedouin desert of the Bible. This is a problem that drapes the Northeast. We could go and scour all the original 13 colonies. And you know what you would see? As you drive down roads, you would see congregations that allowed Trojan horse kinds of ideas because they lost their biblical faithfulness into the church, into the congregation, and men stopped being men, and people stopped having courage, and from within they decayed, and they died, and they became something detestable to God. And we need to be careful, because the enemy sees an opportunity. You do not pass laws like they've passed now in Canada. You do not pass laws like they've now passed in England. You do not pass laws that they are trying to pass and already passing in certain states. If, they do, if evil does not see an opportunity, but sees an opportunity because it has had such great success in calling true masculinity, true faithfulness, true biblical orientedness as toxic and evil, confusing us, scaring us into silence. This is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And yet we have good truths from Scripture. For instance, Isaiah 54, verse 17, No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Or we could read in Ephesians chapter 6. I could spend the rest of the service. just I could read until the sun comes down. Passages, and some of you are going, you're going to see, challenge accepted. But no, no. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Not you can be silent against the devil's schemes, or you can be tolerant of the devil's schemes, that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 10. 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We know this dramatic shift has taken place in our lifetimes. And so we need, as a congregation, our takeaway is let us not bridle the pulpit. Let us not bridle the elders. Let us not bridle the Word of God and those who stand for the Word of God and build upon that firm foundation. Let us not be ashamed of the truth. Let us, yes, be gentle and give respect to people who do not yet know, who are our enemy. We all, we, our battle plan has it that we are to love our enemies, but we do not love our enemies by lying to them. We do not love our enemies by abandoning this book. We do not love our enemies by falsifying his truth. 
And so as American Christianity continues to shift and Christianity continues to further and further become a hate crime in this nation, our enemies are going to get even more bold to try and test our beliefs, to trust our commitments, to trust our doctrines, to test our resolve. If Jesus is just that name to you, or he is the name above every name, and every, every knee will fall and bow before. And so we need to be a community in sustained prayer. We need to be a community in proper perspective. We need to be a community understanding that sometimes the evils of the world will come up against us. And yet, no sooner does Moses assign Joshua the responsibility, then Moses offers a second part of the plan. While Joshua is busy looking for brave men of courage, valor, and faithfulness, the covenant intercessor and mediator, Moses is going to go up a hill with a piece of wood that God has ordained to be a very unique piece of wood. A piece of wood that has accomplished much as we've recognized throughout this series, both in judgment and in mercy. Judgment for some, mercy for others. Judgment into death for some, deliverance into freedom of life for others. And so the battle plan is set. A people found often wandering the wilderness as they're weakened by life, and yet they need not fear because in the epic of battle we will learn the worldly weapons are secondary. As Joshua struggles on the plain and Moses wrestles on the hill, we realize there's actually a spiritual battle going on here, a greater one. This hill actually foreshadows and declares the eternal reality of Jesus interceding for us, his people, who are faithful to heed his instructions from on high. And remember again, not all the congregation was picked to defend, but so surely the men who were picked, if they did not defend, these people would have been wiped out. A story we see throughout our landscape. And yet, as the battle begins in verse 10, something happens. Aaron and her, and Aaron we know is Moses' brother. Her we know a little about. The best guess is he was an advisor, a judicial advisor for Moses. Maybe one of the elders who was a part of the trial in the earlier verses of chapter 17. But they go up the mountain with Moses. Which means something. Because there is no way Aaron and her would have joined Moses without Moses' permission or even calling upon them to join him. Moses had something very hard to do that day, and he called out, most theologians agree, though you can take a different view, to these men to come and help him. And these men would have surely been candidates for Joshua to fight the people in the battle that's ensuing in the land right now, but they joined Moses up the hill. And Moses is obviously okay with this fact. Where are the powers of hell currently getting the best of you personally today? Have you called in for help? Have you called in for people to come alongside you? You have. Well done. Well done. We need help in the Christian walk. We have a God who says, take up your cross and follow me. That means it's suffering. and We're going to need help. And Moses in this moment needs help. And not only is Moses willing to receive the help, but he has two men who are willing to give the help. And in the balance of the Christian life, it's a balance of sometimes, and, and this is the harder point. I, I love all you Pennsylvania Dutch, but this is going to be the harder point for you Pennsylvania Dutch. Sometimes you just need to bleat like a sheep. You need to ask for help. You need to call out for help. And sometimes you need to be the help. 
That's the natural reality of the congregation of Israel. Even Moses, who was at the forefront of the community, needed to call on others for help. So who are you calling on for help? Or are you falling into that American trap of not really living a congregational life, not really living a communal life, but, but, but embracing the sola brutstrapis model? I'll be able to solve it. I'll be able to handle it. I'll be able to deal with it. The schemes of Satan's attack plan are clear, and he will seize upon our own worst enemies. And these days, those enemies are either a short drive away or on the digital highway in our lives. They can be found in a few clicks. And when the world comes against us and the world is beating down our door, when we leave this place, do we have people like Moses did and her and Aaron where he could say, hey, come alongside me. I need your help with this. This is going to be difficult. The faithful life in the Lord is a life that, again, seeks us both to ask for help and to seek help at times. Then in verse 11, we discover how the battle is being won. Now normally, if you want to know how a battle is being won or lost, you focus in on the front lines. I'm sure right now in Ukraine, there are all sorts of manner of drones and satellites that are just focused in, constantly updating where the front lines are for both the Russian armies and the Ukrainian armies. That's how the world looks. It looks at the front line. But here, actually, removed from the front lines is a man holding up a staff, a piece of wood. And Moses notices that every time he lowers that staff, people start seeming to die. By the way, that would have been really hard to first notice and realize. He got tired, and all of a sudden, people started to die. And so he needs to keep his hands up. And her and Aaron with him, they notice the struggle of Moses. They notice the, the battle that he's currently in. And first they go and they get a rock for him to sit on so that he can hold up the, the, the piece of wood over his head during the battle. And then they even hold up his arms. They help hold up his arms. And we know then that he was holding it like that with both arms on the staff so that it would not fall, so that Israel would prevail. And so instead of the heart of the battle being of what's going on in the front lines, what's going on with swords clamoring against other swords, there is this hillside in the distance. And it's a terrible image on the front of your bulletin, but it, it, there is a decent suspected place for where this took place. There is a hillside in the distance, and it's made of boulders and stone. And on that hillside is the mediator, and his arms are stretched out, and they're raised above him. And the battle is being won and lost, not through the main theater of fighting, but through that hill, that glorious hill. And so we have this beautiful illustration. of God's love. Those steady arms on the hillside, they held victory in them until the very sun itself went down into the depths of the horizon and darkness covered the field of battle. Oh, what imagery of victory this mighty hill had. How might that sun's departing have looked at first? Moses must have looked upon that sun's departure as did those of the Lord's army, both with a, an element of fear, but also maybe even a sense of relief. 
And as the sun goes down, the passage tells us that Yeshua overwhelmed evil Amalek. The wooden translation for in the Hebrew for overwhelmed there in the ESV is better said disabled. It's not that Amalek wouldn't and couldn't rise up again in order to fight the people of God once more. Actually, even as late as the story of Esther, Haman has connections to this family. Because again, this is a long struggle that is ongoing. It's a spiritual battle. But what happened that day through the hill with the outstretched arm and the valley fighting of Yeshua gave a victory that disabled evil's ability to overwhelm the people of God. It actually, on the hill that day, and the battle that was waged by Yeshua and his intermediator and Moses on the hill, they created it, as the Hebrew tells us, a critical weakness for any designs of future attack against the people of God. And so, Christian, here's the time to ask you, do you look at our own hill of victory in the same way? With such confidence and security about the battle already being won, that we know the enemies can never defeat us, as well as times we stumble on that battlefield and we fall. We fall in the shadow of that sweet hill that brings victory. Do you have a faith that holds tightly to the shield by which the flaming darts of evil can never strike you or overwhelm you? Do you have that hill? Because evil never overwhelming us because the hill upon which our mediator's arms were stretched out for our salvation. That's the Christian worldview. That's our Christian confidence. That's our Christian faith. And then in verse 14 of this passage, it finally happens. It hasn't happened until this moment in chapter 17. The moment in chapter 17 where we saw God put on trial and living water poured out. And now we see the hillside with the outstretched arms that brings victory and salvation for the people. Something happens in Exodus 17 here that has never happened in any of the chapters preceding it in all of Scripture. Not in creation, not with Adam and Eve, not with Noah, the Noahic covenant, the flood, not with Abraham, not with Babel, not with Isaac, not with Jacob, then Israel, not with Joseph, not with the Red Sea, not with the slavery, not with the plagues. God tells Moses, write this down in a book. The people of God at this moment of victory on the hill are going to have a book in which they will be able to read about the story of the victory. And the book is in the pews. And the book is in our homes. And the book gives us a confidence, even over death itself. And the book gives us life. And this is the first time that God is making clear, I'm building a story, and actually within the passage, he's building a story that's going to be a generational story. And that it's going to be a book, and the people are going to be able to read that book. And the people when reading that book are going to be able to remember, my God gives me victory with the outstretched arms on the hill. My God gives me new life because he allowed himself to be judged and judgment to fall upon him, and water flows from him, living water. And that's the Christian worldview, and that's Christian news, and we know that's true because we have the book. We have the gift of the book. And the book was given in this moment. It started with Moses being the first author, but then we would have a great many others, maybe as many as 40.
And then, after receiving the promise of the book, Moses makes an altar and Moses makes a banner. And there's an important lesson for us to remember here. Even when the ungodly attack the faithful of God, we've seen victory. Even though some we know from this account would have died in the field of battle, there is victory. There's actually more martyrs today in our world dying for the faith than have ever lived before. But still, as people die in this field of battle, our victory is assured. And it's assured because the Lord is with us. And He being with us is meant to inspire us, to embolden us, to allow us to be men and women of great courage. And then the question becomes, to who should get the credit for the victory? To who should get the credit of the spoils? Should it be shared? Should it be given to the people? Should Because they responded, you know, being faithful, or should it be given to God? And Moses understood who it should be given to. He understood that our Lord, who is both first and last, is the only one who should receive glory for victory. Moses desired the, the place, the victor's crown, on the true winner's head. And he created a monument not to man, but to God, because God secured the victory in this moment. And he gave it a truthful name, Jehovah Nissa, which means the Lord is my banner. Moses let God have the highest of high in the victory of that day, and humanity's place is rightly below that banner, the Lord's salvation. This banner of victory being the Lord himself means we need, never need to fear. And we should know this far better than the original congregation of Israel understood it. I'm sure they would have sat there and gone, what was with that hill with the outstretched arms that saved us? What about that was saving? But we know it because we have more hills in this sacred book that have been talked about. The story continues because we know of the hill that our, more, our Lord marched up and he took his own piece of wood with him. And so his arms would not give way. He could not call on his disciples. They had all fled. He was nailed to that piece of wood. He had no her for Aaron helping him. No, he had been abandoned by all others. And that could have been a thing of great lament, of great sorrow and sadness. He had been betrayed by the congregation of Israel. But the thing is, it isn't. It isn't because he rose again. And after he rose, he went up another mountain and he told his New Testament followers, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go, go and make disciples. Go, essentially conquer for the kingdom, first baptizing them and then teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We have a wonderful sacrificial altar in the cross and it declares to us the same true banner as it declared in Exodus 17 when God first commanded the book be written. The Lord is our victory. He's our victory whether the enemy is found within us at times as we've seen in the wilderness or the enemy is found outside of us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that in the trials and tests of this life, our salvation and security is assured through the outstretched arms of Christ. He is the one who the darkness of ultimate judgment was allowed to fall upon so that we could be forgiven of our sins, which are many, Lord. Our sins, which if we could measure them, we would be overwhelmed with them. You have forgiven us through the cross of Christ. You are so powerful, you have the power to defeat them all. And so we praise you for that salvation we have received from Jesus.
And we praise you in his name. Amen. Now let's take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord.